Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday morning Bible class. You guys doing okay? All right. We're going to be in John chapter 2 if you want to go ahead and take your Bible out and turn there. We'll get there in a minute. John chapter 2, chronologically the first miracle of Christ, water into wine, John 2, 1 through 11. So we'll be studying that text this morning for the next little bit. I want to give you an opportunity. We'll have a prayer here in just a minute before we start. So We've got uh, folks on our care lines who need prayers. Um, Pray for Linda Garnett. She's having a needle biopsy. Um, I don't think I have any other updates on folks. You know, uh, Wednesday, it was in the announcements, and I guess it's in there today, about Matt Presley. If you've been around Hoover for... A while, you may remember Matt. He was a youth minister here in the early 90s, I think, with uh, when Gary Bradley Jr. was uh, a preaching minister here. And uh, Matt, he's he's about my age, I think, maybe a year or two older than I am. But anyway, he's in the hospital in UAB. He's been having these uh, weird neurological symptoms, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, uh, confusion, memory loss, stuff like that. And um, so Matt's here. They live, he and his wife live in Mobile, but he's here. And I told them that we'd be praying for them. So if you guys would maybe add Matt to your prayer list, uh, that'd, be, that'd be great. They're just really trying to figure out what in the world's going on. So we sent him up from Mobile to UAB last uh, Saturday, week, nine days, eight days ago. And um, as far as I know, they still haven't found out anything. So pretty, pretty tough situation. Who else we need to add to our care line? So you want me to pray for anybody else this morning? No updates or additions? All right then. I don't think I've, it seems like I'm something slipping, but uh, uh, let's pray. All right. Thank you, Lord, for this good day. We can worship you today. We can celebrate what you've done for us through Jesus. And on this, that Sunday morning, a long time ago, the tomb was empty. And because of that, we come here today as your people to uh, thank you for that and to recommit ourselves once again to living the upcoming week as your people uh, who follow a crucified but resurrected Lord. And we pray that when we make decisions this week and The words, the thoughts of our heart, everything about us will be informed and shaped by that conviction. We pray for the ones who are on our care lines, Lord, um, for Linda Garnett and the procedure she's having this week, for Matt Presley and his family and the doctors at UAB who are trying their best to figure out what's going on with him. Uh, We pray for people in our congregation, our family members, for Butch Haynes, who's health is declining quickly for Jim Banks and others of our shut-ins, Lord. Please be with this church. Help us to be more and more of what you've called us to be in this community. Uh, we, we do ask you to bless our class this morning, and, and we thank you for Jesus and the amazing things that he did. And as we reflect on them, we pray that we'll learn what you want us to learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, welcome again to, to uh, this class. We're going to be in John chapter 2, and I'd love for you to turn there with me. Uh, we'll pretty much stay right there. So uh, go ahead and join me there. <clears throat> John chapter 2. All right, last week we studied a text in, that's recorded in different of the gospel accounts. We studied... Matthew 14 and Mark's, Mark's account of it as well, the what, Jesus walking on water. And so this class for the next uh, few months, next 12 weeks or so, we're going to be studying the different miracles of Jesus. And I'm not following any predetermined plan necessarily, so if you have one you particularly want me to cover, I, I, I'm probably open to that. We're not going to cover them all. There are too many of them. Uh, but I'm, I'm just going to choose ones based on which ones I think are uh, interesting at the time and and so we'll, we'll go through them, and we're going to do John chapter 2 today because this one is a pretty big deal, and I'll show you why I think that's the case this morning. So anyway, if you have any uh, input, I'm, I'm welcome. I'm, I'm glad for you to do that. Just let me know, and I'll try to cover the miracle you want me to cover. John chapter 2. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll go back and we'll think about it this morning. John 2, 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some. Or draw some out and, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. Let's go ahead and read verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Okay, so John 2, 1 through 11. I, I, wanted to, I didn't cover it first, but I wanted to cover it pretty early on, if for no other reason that this was, according to John 2, 11, this was the first of his signs recorded here in the gospel. Uh, John recorded that, that, that Jesus, in any of the gospels, apparently this was the first one that Jesus performed. You know, it's always interesting to think about Jesus, and, and uh, there are some of the other Gospels that were written, like the Gospel of ones that aren't in the Bible for good reason, I think, but the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, some of them record some things about Jesus as a child. And it's interesting to speculate about what Jesus may have been like as a child. Like they all include stories about Jesus making things levitate when he was a toddler or when he was a, you know, a kid, small kid, that he, he he struck some people out in the playground, you know that sort of thing. If they if he if they were acting ugly or whatever, some of those gospels record some of those some of those miracles that Jesus may have done when he was a child. But as you know, those are purely speculative. And as far as we know, Jesus did not display, uh, at least in in a sense like this, any sense of his being who he was until this particular moment. It's always made me wonder, though, uh, why, why Mary does what she does here. Why does she say they have no wine to Jesus? You know, why does she say that? Thing? We're in John 2, by the way. If you, if you, 
those of you coming in. Um, John chapter 2. So she says, when they run out of wine, she says, they have no wine, which was, it was a, an interesting thing to say to, to Jesus. Um, it, it's almost like she's leading him. She's, she's hinting at, okay, they, they've got no wine. This is a big, 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 big social faux pas. And so why don't you hint, hint, do something about it? Now, I think Mary, we, we know going back in Mary's life to the time when Jesus was born, the angel and that whole deal, Mary had a strong conviction about who he was. And that, I'm guessing, is what she was thinking. She was maybe leading Jesus along, or maybe she was, she was thinking that this would be a great time for you to do something incredible. I don't know exactly what's going through Mary's mind here, but it's an interesting thing to speculate about. Now, there's, there's a lot going on here, and I hope I can share with you a little bit of the significance of, of this, this miracle. And let's just kind of go through it, and I'll point out some things, and we'll come back and reflect on what it means to us. Um, let's talk about the, the wedding itself for a minute. It's from what I've been able to read and study based on what scholars say about the first century world, their way of doing weddings was a lot different from our way of doing weddings. It was, it was a huge social event. Would have been, as you, as you may know, the betrothal period was more binding than our engagement period today. In some sense, they parallel. In other ways, they don't. It would have gone on for a, a, a year or so, but the wedding's date would be announced far in advance. And it was... It was a huge social event for, for the community. They would, it would last for up to a week. And we get some hints of this from some of the stories Jesus told about the parable of the, you know, the, the bridesmaids and, and all that. The, the, the groom would come and he would, he would get the bride and he would take her to the father's house and in this great procession. And then the wedding feast would begin and it would last for a week or so. And... And this is something I don't fully understand, but this just doesn't match up with our Western conventions. But the, the, the part about running out of wine was a really big deal. And it's more, it's more than just, oh, we're embarrassed. I mean, that would have been, that would have been part of it. But it's, it's more than just, oh, no, you know, let's go. Let's go go down to the corner store and pick up some some drinks or whatever. It, it's it's more than that. In fact, and I can't find out exactly what this means, but I read this in more than one that there can even be, in some sense, there can be lawsuits brought against the family because there's so much anticipation for this, and and this having wine at the banquet was such a it was part of a. Their culture was part of an honor-shame culture, different from ours, different from the Western world, an honor-shame, saving face, you know, all that. You see in some parts of the Eastern world, even to this day in the Middle East and other parts of the world. So there, in, in some cases, there are records of people bringing lawsuits because people didn't plan well enough in advance and have enough wine there. So there are a couple of things going on. When they, when they run out of wine, it would have been huge embarrassment for them, number one. 
But number two, it's stronger than that. It's, um, it's potentially going to become a big scandal in the community. So um, just keep that in mind. And so when Mary says they have no wine here, that suggests that she's got some sort of connection to this family. Now, Cana is not too far from Nazareth, which is where Jesus was raised. And, and so most likely, there's some sort of familial connection here. At least most people think there's some sort of family relationship thing going on. That um, this, this, there were, because Mary says this, Mary is trying to protect this family. And so she's close to them in some sense, maybe family-wise, maybe friends. But she's trying to protect them when she says they have no they have no wine. All right, so Jesus' response is pretty interesting, isn't it? Uh, and it's, it's kind of hard to know how to read this exactly. But he says to this, to her, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. All right, I want to say a couple things about that. I want, first of all, I want you to know that it's not as disrespectful as it would be if my mom asked me to do something and I said, woman, what have I to do with you? I would never do that. So, it's, so you can't read it like that, but I don't want to soften it too much. So I'm, I want to talk for a minute about, okay, don't read it quite as disrespectfully as, as you think, but then I'm going to back off from that a little bit and say, but I want you to read it with a little bit of something because there is a little bit of something going on. But, but the first part of it, let's deal with the first part of this first. This was an unusual, but not completely out of, I don't want to say out of ordinary. It, it was an unusual, but not necessarily a disrespectful way of him to talk to his mother. Wasn't the customary way for him to address his mom, but it was okay. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't a bad thing necessarily. And I can show you, I'm not going to turn to these passages, but Jesus did this a lot, actually. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. John 4, in, in John's Gospel, for example. John 4, 21. Remember the woman of Samaria at the well? He addresses her as woman. The woman caught in adultery in John 8, 10. Remember the caught in the very act, brought to Jesus, and Jesus says, calls her woman. He, he calls his mother this later on. John 19, at the cross. John is the one who tells us about this when He's, he's hanging on the cross, and he looks down, and he says, Woman, remember this? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Obviously, that wasn't, it was a very, I think that was a very tender moment when, when, John is, when Jesus is saying, essentially to John, his cousin, he's saying, Hey, man, uh, take care of my mama. You know, I'm, I'm turning her over to you. He addressed, in John 20, verse 15, he says uh, to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, he calls her woman. All right, so we need to understand that. However, I'm reading here from one commentary. Nevertheless, it is unusual for him to address his mother this way when other titles would be preferred. So this, there, there were other ways for him to address his mom that would have been more normal, more customary, maybe even more respectful, more, I don't know, less... Uh, Less possible of being read in some other way, I guess, is a good way to put it. And, and so, um, not this commentary, but another one said, trying to come up with some sort of English way of, of expressing this woman idea. And it's almost like, best I can tell, it's almost like he addresses her in an overly formal way. 
like instead of using some sort of term in endearment, like in, in English it would be mom or, or I don't know how you address your mom, or, you know, mom or mama or something like that, some sort of, yes, ma'am. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the difference. This this is not casual like that. If if somebody comes up, yeah, yeah, it probably does. And there, that's why it's, yeah, it's that's why it's hard for us to do this. And and two thousand years later, and we're trying to we're using a different language and and all this. But what I want you to see here is, I guess this is it's not a term of endearment. It's not inherently disrespectful. Uh, and it's a little bit overly formal. And one, one commentator I was reading suggested that it would be something like saying, maybe in English, saying, my, my dear lady. Something like that. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, I think that kind of gets, gets to it. Because he's not saying mom or mama in a, some sort of endearing kind of way. And he's not being disrespectful. But he is, he is wording this in such a way as to create a little bit of distance here. And, I, and I, I do think there's this subtle implication here that Jesus, because of what he says after this, he's, he's, he's essentially saying, I think, you are my mother, but you need to understand, I don't do what you tell me to do. I'm, I'm, on, a, I'm on a timetable. I am, he didn't say all this, but it's just kind of subtle. And when you read what happens after this, I'm the son of God. I have an agenda and I have a plan and I respect you and I love you. But I'm not going to do what you want me to do in every situation because you want me to do it. I don't want to be reading too much into it, but it's the my dear lady thing. A little bit of, a little bit of um, you know, saying to his mom, okay, let's remember our relationship is not the same as everybody else, as other moms and their sons. It's not the same. You need, to, you need to recognize that. So it's respectful, but also it establishes some boundaries here. Now, he goes on and does what she asked, obviously, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, I think he is implying something here about, um, well, he would say it more, more clearly later when Jesus was talking to some folks, you remember, and they came in and said, your, what do they say, your mom and your brothers are outside wanting to talk to you? And he said, who, who are my mother and my brothers? But those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven. So he's, Jesus was respectful of family relationships, but he also was very careful to say that those family relationships are subordinate to our relationship to God, which is a principle, of course, that we want to make sure we honor as well. By saying that it's not up to her, it's up to him. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, so she goes right on and she says, I, I, it's interesting. I, I think there are a couple ways of reading that. It's, uh, I, one, one way of reading it would be she completely ignores what he says and she says, do what he says. <laughs> He's about to do something, you know. I think your way is probably a better way. And that is she says, I defer to you, you know, you do what he says. Um, and so he's the one who's, who's making the decision, you know. Um, anyway, it's an interesting thing. Uh, the, the next part of that woman, uh, ESV says, what does this have to do with me? Literally, from Greek to English, which you can't do most of the time. It doesn't make sense, but literally this would be woman, what to you and to me? That's what it says. What to you and to me? And the, I think the NIV puts this, why do you involve me? Is one way of putting it. Um, or this guy says, what do we have in common? Let's literally, what do we have in common? Like, what to you and to me? What do we have in common? Why do you involve me? Or this paraphrase, how can this matter that concerns you be of mutual interest to us? So that whole idea, what to you and to me, there's this idea of commonality. Mary was obviously very concerned about this, but Jesus seems to be saying, my dear lady, woman, you're concerned about this, but what does that have to do with our mutual interest? What does that have to do with my accomplishing a higher mission that I'm coming to accomplish? Because the, he goes on and he says uh, the very next thing, my hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. Okay, so there's something big going on here, you know, um, and I think there are all sorts of hints here that that is, uh, there's, there's a big deal here. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. A lot of water. Um, they had these different rites. Some, some people speculate this, this could have, they, they could have had water there that would have been used for the uh, consummation of the marriage, the conjugal act between husband and wife, that there, were, uh, there, there was water used uh, as an act of purification. But because of the quantity of water here, it's more likely that this is associated with some other Jewish rite of purification that would have happened during the course of the wedding feast. So you got a lot of water, 120 to 180 gallons of water, uh, or at least the, that's how much they could hold. And Jesus is going to make a lot of wine. And so um, I'm going to come back to that idea because I think there's a lot of theological significance to that. So I'm going to circle back to that in a minute. But just to talk about what he did, he, he told them to, they, he said, fill, fill them, fill the jars. And they filled them up to the brim, which is a, an important little cue there, I think. Verse 8, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it and the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. So we, we, don't, know, uh, we don't know exactly at what point the water became wine. We, we don't know. Uh, it just, at some point during this process, the, the act of pouring the water into these, these jars, these big jars, um, it, became, it became wine. 
Now, I'm wanting to, I want to uh, make sure we've got time to talk about the, the theological stuff that's going on here. I think from a, just a understanding the story perspective, you know, verse 10 says, Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. Obviously, it was uh, customary for you to put the good wine out first, and then later you'd put the poor wine out. Um, and the, and the, the master here, he doesn't know what's going on. You know, where did this come from, and why did they save it for now? He doesn't know what's happened here. And then it just says in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The, uh, it's important here to, for, for you guys to notice the use of the word sign here. We're studying the miracles of Jesus. Usually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're going to use the word that's translated miracle. But John goes about it differently. John, John points to them as signs. And I think that's an interesting difference. It's an, it's an interesting clue that we're supposed to read these texts as doing more than simply making people amazed at what he had done. That's the word miracle or the word wonder. Miracles, signs, and wonders. I think that's how Luke puts it and how Peter puts it in, in Acts 2. Miracles, signs, and wonders. Uh, the idea of wonder is what it creates in the person who sees it or witnesses it. Oh, wow, I can't believe that's amazing. Uh, but the word sign, as you, as you know from that word, that little word, it signifies something. It points to something. And John is all about that, especially in the first half of his book. John, John chapters 1 through 11 are all about the signs of Jesus. In fact, if you count them up, this is, this is pretty important. If you count them up in the first half of the book, through the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11, you, you find seven signs. You find seven. This is the first of the signs. You, you read this uh, on, and you, Jesus does a number of things, but you've got seven signs. You've also got seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. You've got... I am the resurrection and the life, that's John 11. The way, the truth, and the life, that's John 14. The door of the sheep, the good shepherd, that's John 10. The light of the world, that's John 9, 5, and John, also in John 10. Uh, what else does he say? Anyway, there are seven of them, seven I am's. John is very intentional about the way he writes his gospel. And I don't, I've said to this this to you before, but the, the Bible is written in such a way, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's written in such a way, God working through human personalities and authors to communicate his will, but he does so in a way that provides years and years, lifetimes, lifetimes, centuries, millennia of reading the Bible and never getting to the, to, to the depth of it. I mean, we, we continue to discover new things that, get, that God's Spirit put within it. And, um, and John was very intentional about the way he wrote. You got seven I am's. You got seven signs. Let me give you one more seven idea here that I think is here. Um, notice, go back, if you get your Bible there, notice this. John 1. Turn back to John chapter 1. 
I want you to see this. I think it's pretty interesting. John 1, 29, all right? The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Look at verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Look at John 1, 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And then look at John 2, 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And interesting that John is very careful here about designating the passing of time as if he's thinking of something. So I think what's going on here, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't die for this, but I do believe it to be true, that if you, if you look at this, you've got John 1, 19 and following, the testimony of John, this conversation they had, um, this, they're, they're trying to figure out who John is and all this. And uh, so John the Baptist has this conversation with them. So that's day one, okay? That's the first day. And then verse 29, the next day, that's the second day. And then John 1.35, the next day, that's the third day. And then John 1.43, that's the fourth day, the next day, right? And that brings you to John 2 on the third day. That's five, six, what day is this? This is day seven. This is day seven. You look back at how John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, John's gospel goes all the way back to creation in John, John 1. It goes all the way back to reference. The, the, the language is similar. He's going all the way back to Genesis 1, and he start, starts his gospel. He's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know, who start there? You know, Matthew starts with a genealogy and goes into the birth. Uh, Luke starts with a genealogy, talks about the birth. Um, Mark is very brief in his beginning, but then you got John who just does it differently. He goes all the way back in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, right? So John starts his gospel by not doing a genealogy, but, but rather identifying Jesus with the one who created the world. And then he immediately follows that description up of Jesus as creator by a, an intentional designation of a week of a seven-day period it seems to me that he does this purposefully to help us to see that on the seventh day where where God rested in the creation week where God rested in you know after make, making everything in six days God rested on the seventh day you come to the seventh day and you've got a wedding this banquet feast and you've got Jesus taking these these, these jars that were normally used for these Jewish rites of purification. And instead of filling them with water that would be used in these Jewish rites that were associated with a system characterized by, um, you know, characterized by, well, a, a lack of ultimate forgiveness, you know, the Jewish system, in many ways it had been corrupted over time and turned into a system that was... Uh, at least by certain of the, of the leaders of the day, a legalistic kind of thing. And Jesus, on the seventh day, he comes and he takes these jars normally used for these Jewish rites and he fills them with wine, which signifies the blessing of God. And so Jesus as creator, I think John wants us to read John 1 and 2 as another creation week, as a recreation. You've got the creation of the world in Genesis 1, and you've got this week in, in John 1 and 2, culminating at this great wedding in, in John chapter 2. You've got, you've got this, Jesus signifying that I came 
to provide bounty and rest, something that the Jewish rites of purification can never do. Wait. That's interesting. I never thought about that water in the blood thing. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that it would be consistent with Matthew, especially. I'm trying to think about John, but I know Matthew, especially, paints Jesus as the new Moses, you know, um, as the new and better Moses, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you know, he went up on the mountain and delivered the Sermon on the Mount in contrast to uh, Moses who went up on the mountain and received the law of God. Um, prior to that, you know, uh, you've got Jesus being tempted of the devil for 40 days in the wilderness, which corresponds, I think, to, you know, Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years back in the Old Testament. So you've got a lot of parallels. I, I never thought about the one about the water and the blood. That's interesting. So, the, um, this whole, and I, that's what I love about studying the Bible, and I, I just think it's, it's amazing how much is there, you know, and how many just beautiful ways that it all fits together. And so you got that, you've got that connection with creation, you've got the parallels, you've got this uh, culmination of creation week, as it were, and, and Jesus, in, in so many ways, in the New Testament, paints Christianity as a, a recreation. You know, we are new creatures in Christ, new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Uh, all things have become new. And, uh, and so you've got just, you've got some pretty neat things going on here. The, the part about the good wine, you know, it, it's more here going on than simply that the wine tasted good. You know, the, the, the master of the feast didn't know what was going on. But when he says, he takes this wine, he's like, man, this is good. <laughs> you know, this is good stuff. This is good wine. Um, he's saying more than he knows. And he is being used by God in this moment to communicate a theological truth about the significance of this event that Jesus has come to bring the good stuff. 
He has come to bring about bounty and good. In the Old Testament, uh, passages like Hosea 2.22 and Amos 9.13 and 14, the land of Canaan or Israel that would become the land of Israel, when God wants to talk about it, you know, he uses expressions like it flows with milk and honey, right? There are also expressions like those found in those two passages that say that God's blessings are associated with the abundance of wine. I mean, that's, that's an Old Testament expression that in, in you know, Amos and other places, uh, Hosea and Amos and, and elsewhere, that you'll know you're being blessed when you, you know, you, you've got your, your own vines and dwell under your own fig tree. And it's this idea of this is God's blessing. This is God smiling with favor on his people. So it's no coincidence that their entrance into the land of Canaan, the Old Testament, when God promised them that they would be able to go into the land, it would be this great land with flows of milk and honey. It would be, you know, the wine would be flowing and you'd have your own fig tree and the grapes would produce and all this, all these beautiful images. That's, that's what it would look like when you are being blessed by God in the land of Canaan. And so the very first sign that Jesus does is what? He doesn't provide just a couple of glasses of wine here, right? You got 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Just the, the bounty, it's like it's, it's flowing. And, and the idea being that this is God's favor. God is, God is smiling on this moment. It's just a lot of theological significance. There's also the idea of the banquet feast and the wedding idea. Let's talk about the banquet idea. When, uh, when the Bible wants to talk about the time, time to come, the, the final age, the, often called the eschatological age, the, you know, the uh, eschatology, last things, final things, and when it, when it talks about that, it, it often describes it in terms of a big banquet, you know, a, a feast. And, and so Jesus will say that when that day comes, you and I will sit down at the banquet table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and we'll enjoy this beautiful feast. You got that symbolism in Revelation and, and also in Matthew's Gospel and other places of, of, of sitting down at this banquet table and where you've got plenty to eat and plenty to drink. And it just signifies this great, great event. And so the first sign of Jesus, you got all these different themes, you know, coming together here. you got the creation idea, the re creation, recreation, you know, going into the land of Israel where there's plenty of wine, and Jesus provides plenty of wine. you got the, the banquet table that was a big part of a wedding feast where they would sit down and they would enjoy the blessings that God had provided, and Jesus joins in with that banquet feast. And then you got the wedding idea that's also pretty important in, in biblical times, and um, in, in the final time, our, our, our being recreated, our, our being reconciled to God ultimately and being able to sit down at that banquet table, it's also described in terms of a wedding. You know, that, that, that's, the, that's when the wedding will finally take place. We are, in a sense, now betrothed to God. You know, we're in the betrothal period, but there's coming a time when that wedding feast will happen, the wedding will Will, will occur in this great banquet feast and we'll sit down and just all these different images coming together here. And, and I think 
that Jesus intends for this to be read in a way that, of course, they didn't understand all this in the moment. You know, they didn't know all this. But, but as, as, the, as the biblical story becomes more complete, we can read this and we can see all these hints, you know, of what is to come, the great messianic wedding and consequent banquet feast characterized by plenty of wine and food. You know, it's a beautiful image. You guys got thoughts or comments about any of this? Hey, Reggie. Yeah, that's good. That's a good parallel. Uh, John 6, the whole, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus engages in that pretty difficult, for them to hear, a difficult lesson about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. There's, just, there's so much in the ministry of Jesus, you know, where he takes, he takes something that was important, something that was well-known in their world, and often it's associated with a Jewish feast or holiday or something, and he, he, he gives it its fuller meaning, which is a the beauty of the biblical narrative, you've got, you know, the idea of fulfillment is filling full. And so, for example, Passover or some sort of Jewish feast or, or whatever, it has its meaning. It has a very important meaning. Passover has a meaning of rescue from slavery, but it wasn't filled full, right, until the Lord came and he fills it. He fills it full. You know, that's a beautiful a beautiful image. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I don't want to read too much into this being a, a wedding. I mean, I, I don't want to act as if this is like the primary point, but it is neat that Jesus comes to a wedding. He chooses that very, uh, that happy occasion that just a part of life, you know. He comes to a wedding, and that's where he chooses to do his first sign. It's, it's a, not only an endorsement of what we do in marriage, but it is, a, it is his, not only giving his stamp of approval to that, but it's pointing to something greater. But, but it is, it's just interesting. Jesus is, uh, apparently he spent his life and much of his time doing what people did. And he went to a, 
happy occasion to celebrate with friends and family. So it's pretty, it's pretty neat. One thing, and this came from, uh, well, probably almost out of time. Let me say one more thing and then we'll be done. But thinking of application, what Jesus does, and I don't want you to miss this point. I think it's one of the main points here. That these jars were used for the Jewish rites, right? Jesus filled them, not with water, but with wine. And so signifying, I'm not giving you water, I'm giving you wine. You know, this, this, the good stuff, this idea of, of um, I'm bringing in something new, something better. This is the good wine. <laughs> that there's a sense in which Jesus takes our ritual expressions that can become empty or devoid of their meaning. You know, that we can, we can, we can ourselves as Christians, get into ruts and do rites and rituals and for them to lose their meaning. And there's a sense in which Jesus may even be coming to our, our day and time. He, he may be coming to our rites and trying to fill them with the beauty of his, of his glory. Let me read you something here from, from this fella. But he says that this is a message that John will give in many of his stories about Jesus. Here the focus is on Jewish rituals of purification, six stone jars. These are being filled with new contents, producing an abundance of wine. This wine recalls the many prophetic words about the day of the Lord when God's arrival and blessings are seen, particularly in an abundance of wine in the land. Therefore, these vessels of purification cannot be put to their former use. The Messiah has touched them and made them obsolete for purification. Religious instruments that had been treasured in the traditions of many generations must undergo severe Rethinking, And he goes on to talk about the fact that we need to be careful in our own patterns and rituals. There's nothing wrong with doing things again and again, but they can become mere rites, empty of their, empty of the meaning that gave them their form, right? And so Jesus, sometimes I believe, he probably wants to give some new wine, some good wine to our own expressions in that, we make sure that we remember the significance of, of the right itself and not get so caught up in form that we forget the proper function of the form. All right, we're out of time. Thanks so much for being here and, and uh, being a part of the class.